what does DEI look like in your organization? We have such a checkered past with race here in the United States, in America, that we think everything is about that. Diversity has so many layers. And the more that we're able to show that we're embedding diversity, equity, inclusion principles at every step along the way, I think the, the more attractive we become to candidates. When there are not clear, transparent talks about pay, people are just like turned off. A candidate straight out asked, what was our company's stance and what were we doing to support it? And I remember like almost, I think I audibly gasped because it was just something that I had never heard in that format and I was not prepared for that question. Diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't just window dressing. Employees are expecting it. And we need to reframe how we think about differences in the workplace. How someone having a voice that was different than everyone else's voice brought a new idea or pushed an initiative forward or did something interesting, really celebrating those wins. DE&I can be transformative for a company, especially if it's measured. What is the ROI? You know, what is the impact on the business by having DEI? Because again, it is a business function. So really having that conversation about this is how the work that we're doing is impacting the organization. Because it truly is connected to everything in the organization. And like everything else, getting started can be daunting. Start wherever you are and look around. Do some of these first steps and understand what's going to work for you and your culture. I believe wholeheartedly, y'all, that every person has a diversity, equity, and inclusion story. We just have to look for it, right? Some of us have to work harder than others. We're going to explore the benefits of a diversity, equity, and inclusion program and what it means for your organization right here, right now. This is Get Pay Right, the podcast that dives deep into the current compensation topics that matter to you most, so you can get it right every time. I'm your host, Kevin Plunkett, and welcome. This week, we have a special edition. My colleague, Lena Turner, hosted a roundtable of DE&I and HR leaders, to discuss the results of our latest survey, the second annual Intentions versus Actions Survey, which examines what companies are doing regarding DEI. And rather than try to recreate the whole discussion, we took highlights of what was a very engaging and fascinating conversation. There will be links to both the full discussion and the results of the survey in the show notes under resources. I encourage you all to listen. So let's pick things up as Lena is introducing her guests. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have some wonderful speakers from the diversity, equity, inclusion, and the HR profession that are going to talk to us about this topic. The topic was born out of our second annual Intentions versus Actions survey, diversity, equity, inclusion, Intentions versus Actions. This is our second year conducting the survey. We had over 600 plus respondents give us answers to 17 unique questions that were a two-pronged approach, asking 
what your intentions are around particular diversity initiatives and what your actual actions are, what you're actually doing. So the results came back and we have gathered a panel to talk about some of those results, give us some of their insights based on their background and their journey and their experience in the space. So we're going to meet our speakers and they'll introduce themselves, give a little bit of their background. And we'll start with Francesca, then over to Danielle, then over to Tommy, and then we'll start the discussion. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Lena. I'm Francesca Carrington. I'm the Vice President of DEI and Talent Development at Shark Ninja. I've been with the organization for about a year and six months, but in the DEI space and the talent and development space for I don't know, maybe 15 plus years. So I have definitely been in the space for a very long time. And I'm excited to be here with you today. Thank you. Thanks, Lena. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. I'm Danielle Beckford. I'm the Vice President of Human Resources here at Salary.com. I've been with the company for just over three years now. My main focus is on talent and development, but I partner very closely with Lena, working on our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I'm very excited to be a part of this today. Thanks, everybody. Good afternoon. I'm Tommy Paris, a DEI and EJ advisor with Admontine Energy. And when I reflect on my career so far, the word kind of comes to mind, builder, right? As a builder, you know, conversations like today's, you really stay top of mind because DEI is iterative, right? We are never coasting. We're always trying to close that gap between what we say we're going to do and what we're actually doing. And so I think we're always going to be going back to that narrative that we construct or the path that we lay out initially, right? And check against the progress that we are making or maybe we're not making and make adjustments along the way. So I think today's conversation is really important and I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Tommy. So let's get down to the conversation. The first question I'll throw up, how did you or how have you seen or heard others actually get that senior leadership support. And we know being around HR or diversity programs or on the peripheral of HR or any program, it doesn't have to be HR, getting a mandate to actually have it happen is very, very important. So how did you get senior leadership support? Tell me, you've been a lot of places and I'm sure leadership looks different at every place almost. There are probably some similarities, but how did you get leadership Say when you were building the whole program across the five different. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, from my experience, you know, once our senior leaders became accountable for diversity, equity and inclusion in some meaningful way, boy, that's when the support came. I mean, it was, it was beautiful to be honest. And, and I hate to kind of put the burden on, you know, the CEO or even the board. But at the end of the day, if they are pushing the work as vital to our organization's success, that is when it trickles down. And I'll, you know, say like in my role as director, one of the things I remember, uh, one of the last things I remember leading the implementation of before I went on to another opportunity was our diversity, equity, and inclusion performance goals for all employees. That means from the most entry-level employee to the CEO. And, you know, when senior leaders had to speak to the culture they were creating within their business units, 
that's when, you know, that's when the support happened, right? So that included being able to speak to the representation metrics that they either, you know, were able to hit or not and other, you know, accountabilities that, that they had to speak to. And once that happened, my team got tapped a lot. It was honestly a blessing and a curse <laughs> because we were stretched thin and we were already a, a mighty small team. But once that happened, that's when the leadership support really ramped up. So whenever, you know, we can increase accountability around the work, I think that leadership support will soon follow. I agree with Tommy. You know, I would say that I was fortunate when, you know, joining the organization, joining Shark Ninja, because DEI started at the C-level. So it started with the president of the company. However, you know, when I was considering joining the organization, that is a question that I asked because, of course, we all know that DEI goes nowhere if it doesn't start really at the sea level. So you need it to start there in order for it to trickle down, in order to hold, you know, everyone in the organization accountable. So the senior leadership support was there when I joined the organization. But I was very targeted and very specific in my questions when I was considering, you know, this opportunity. And so to me, I felt like that was the right place. That was the right place for it to start. It also spoke to how successful it was going to be in the organization, you know, and then that having that partnership with the senior leadership team to even say, here are some of the challenges and roadblocks that we're facing within the DEI space. And this is where I need your help. This is where I need your partnership. And that is, you know, DEI continuing to hold the senior leaders accountable for that. So for me, you know, it was, it started, I think I, I joined an organization that was ready for it. Francesca, you made such good points. A couple of things I just wanted to double click on if I could. The first is about making the work personal, right? I, it's just, it's so important because one of the things that often happens is people distance themselves, particularly leaders, right, from the work because, you know, it's like, well, it's their issue or their problem or their work to, to engage in. And they feel left out, but they also kind of leave themselves out by not connecting to the work in a meaningful way. And I believe wholeheartedly, y'all, that every person has a diversity, equity, and inclusion story. We just have to look for it, right? Some of us have to look harder than others, right? And so one of the most powerful exercises I remember offering to our executive leadership team was a creating a personal statement around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that, you know, enabled everybody to kind of connect to the work in a meaningful way so that they didn't feel like a fraud when they went to their organization to talk about it and to really set the tone and set the culture from the top. I love that. I love having leaders or even throughout the employee ranks create their own personal diversity, equity, inclusion statement or diversity statement, whatever you call it, because, you know, and I say this almost on every call I'm on, we have such a checkered past with race here in the United States, in America, that we think everything is about that. Diversity has so many layers. Diversity includes religion, neurodivergence. Just all kinds of things that people can lean into and create their own diverse story. It doesn't have to do always with race and gender because it's very layered and it's a little more complicated than or complex. Danielle, what do you think about that? 
at the C-suite level. I think keeping diversity, equity, and inclusion part of the conversation and every conversation as we make plans for other topics. So when we talk about performance management, how can we find KPIs or accountability points around diversity, equity, and inclusion or recruiting? How can we infuse that into the process? How can we form our mission, vision, and value statements for the company around DE&I. So finding those ways with the conversations that I'm specifically involved in when it comes to tactical and strategic planning for the company, making sure that we keep bringing DE&I into focus and looking at it through that lens and partnering. I love that. Thank you. This leads into my next question. What kind of budgetary support do you think is needed and how do you secure that? I mean, it's it's a program or it's an initiative that is very impactful, but oftentimes we do need support A, and that support and budget comes in the form mostly we need a resource. You already said you're a lean shop. Sometimes it's a shop of one. How do you get that support? The dynamics within our organizations around budgets, right, they're so unique, right? So I think having the organizational savvy around what works and doesn't in your organization is really important. I'll tell you one of the things that worked well for us was reporting out progress like other business metrics, because a lot of times, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is kind of an add-on or perceived, right, to be such an add-on. And so, for example, we calculated the talent move percentages, like promotions and lateral moves of our ERG leaders and connected that effort to the response of our employee engagement survey results where employees clearly stated, hey, career advancement is important for us, right? And so being able to connect to business metrics that were important was really helpful for us. And also one of the tidbits that I learned from an executive in one of our sister companies, I loved her. She was terrific. She talked about making the invisible visible. So, you know, the invisible progress of DEI can sometimes go under the radar if we're not intentional around publicizing the results. And so we had an annual impact report where we made sure, for example, executives received copies. Really, everybody, all employees received copies. And we made those, you know, tangible results of talent move percentage increase, for example, and connected that to our um our engagement survey results. And that's where, you know, people were seeing the connection, seeing the progress and saying, okay, they're doing some meaningful work. So I think that that's something that's helpful in making the case of getting more budget and more support for, for the work. Absolutely. I agree. I am a data person. And so I lead with data. I talk about data. I talk about metrics. But absolutely what Tommy was saying, connecting it to business objectives is really how I have been able to get budget. So I'm showing, you know, what what is the ROI? You know, what is the impact on the business by having DEI? Because, again, it is a business function. You know, so it's no different than marketing. It's no different than human resources or product development, you know, whatever it is. So really having that conversation about, you know, DEI is a business function, and this is how the work that we're doing is impacting the organization, because it truly is connected to everything in the organization. So that kind of leads into the next question. Have you guys seen recruits make diversity, equity, inclusion a focal point of their interview and selection process? 
and I will pivot to Danielle first because from an HR perspective, I imagine you talk to tons of people, tons of interviews. Sometimes we can't get you because you have so many interviews to do. But <laughs> I, and I know that is just a big part of the HR function. So what, what are you seeing? What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I do remember the first time Dee and I came into the conversation it was a very strong way with the, the beginning half of 2020 and something really substantial had happened in the world. And a candidate straight out asked, what was our company's stance and what were we doing to support it? And I remember like almost, I think I audibly gasped because it was just something that I had never heard in that format. And I was not prepared for that question. And it brought up a lot of good conversation as an organization of what are we doing and, and why don't we have a good answer to that question? So from then on, I've definitely seen a consistent trend of asking a lot of questions, maybe not quite that direct and specific, but I think along the lines of inclusion and belonging from a remote standpoint, companies do have to be taking an extra step to make sure that employees are feeling included and they feel like they have a place in the organization. So I get a lot of questions around how diversity is a part of decision-making processes when it comes to promotions. I get questions about the leadership team and what that looks like. I get questions about how will I fit in here? Where will I fit in here? How do I become part of the organization? So we see a lot of that. Also, employee resource groups, you know, I think Two or three years ago, if I said we have ERGs, most candidates would ask, what's that? And now they're asking, what are the ERGs? How do I get involved? What specific topics? Are you open to different topics? So this language, these expectations, they're absolutely coming up. And because diversity, equity and inclusion is part of the culture, I think that that will that will only continue to be more of an expectation and, and questions when employees want to know what, what culture they would be hired into. Exactly. Francesca? So I'm sitting here nodding my head, Danielle, because everything <laughs> I'm co-signing on everything that you're saying right now, because that is that has definitely been my experience. And I love it. I love that the candidates are asking and not only asking, but it's an expectation. And so whenever I am partnering with my university relations partners, for example, and working career fairs, you know, I say to them, ask the question. Absolutely ask, ask everyone at this career fair, what is, what does DEI look like in your organization? But yes, I, I think that candidates, and this is something that I say to leaders all the time, that they are making decisions based on if an organization has, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion at the forefront. So they are making those types of decisions. It's not just about pay. It's also about what type of culture am I coming into? Is it an inclusive and welcoming culture? You know, is it a culture that, you know, promotes speak up culture, for example, what Tommy was saying? So they are being very intentional about their decisions as well, about where and how they want to work. So I definitely have seen it. I love it. I love that conversation. I love the questions that they are asking. You know, like I said, I've been in DEI forever. And so it's good that these types of questions are being asked. And these are the expectations now for organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Getting this cosine, cosine, just cosine all the way around. I mean, we all know that candidates are absolutely paying attention. I talked to a lot of folks who are getting headhunted right, and, and poached. And, you know, 
in the beginning conversations or the beginning stages of the conversations, when there are not clear, transparent talks about pay, people are just like turned off, right? You know, if, if the, you know, posting doesn't have clearly stated the salary range, like, you know, some states are moving toward, or if the, you know, recruiter isn't forthcoming, right? They're asking, you know, what was your pay history versus, hey, this is what the, the job salary range is for this role. That's, you know, a turnoff for candidates. So people are paying attention to the whole experience. And the more that we're able to show that we're embedding diversity, equity, inclusion principles at every step along the way, I think the the more attractive we become to candidates. What are three things an HR leader can do to advance the diversity, equity, inclusion mission at their particular organization? What are three things you think that they can do? I would say one is just working, just partnering with, you know, HR and DEI. I know that a lot of times DEI sit within HR or people in culture. And so having that strong partnership. So one is partnering with talent attraction because that is key to, you know, recruiting talent and having that diverse pipeline, you know, so really partnering with your talent attraction or talent acquisition team, partnering with the university relations team. I also say number two is I work very closely with the HR business partners because they are the people that's in the business. They are connected to the business a little more. And so they are what I call my boots on the ground people, right? And so partnering with them to help me hold leaders accountable. So to help me to um, talk about, you know, keeping the DEI conversation going so that everyone understand what those goals are and then having those conversations when those goals aren't being met and celebrating when those goals are being met. And so partnering with your human resources business partner, at least that has helped. And then thirdly is the um, benefits or total rewards, you know, person. So partnering with that group as well, because then we are talking about compensation. We're talking about benefits. So that's to me is, you know, talking about systems and, and tools and resources you're putting in place to make sure that, they are inclusive, that, you know, that your policies are inclusive. We just talked about pay equity. And so, you know, partnering with those three very important teams and functions, I think, um, helps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I would say is, number one, I recommend focus focusing in on skill-based learning versus, like, informational learning. For example, learning about various biases, you know, that's helpful. But skill-building right, on how to interrupt those biases, I think could be even more helpful and more powerful, particularly at the frontline manager or the middle manager level. I think focusing in on that level will really improve the day-to-day realities of most of the employees because that's that's the bulk of the organization. Right. And we, we know that, you know, frontline managers, middle managers are you know, really wholly responsible for the experience of, of employees each and every day. And so I think focusing in on that level is important. With that, I think the interpersonal approach to DEI is very important, right? Focusing on micro messages and you know, psychological safety, promoting heritage, month, all that stuff is good. 
But systems change, I think, is even more powerful, right, and can lead to enduring change over time. And at the end of the day, that's why we're doing this work, right? So the people who follow in behind us tomorrow can reap the benefits of the work that you and I do today. And I think the last thing to 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 focus on for us as is, is HR folk is really walking the talk within HR. You know, I think sometimes we can feel like we've got to figure it out in HR and we've got to move the, the rest of the organization. But sometimes making sure our house is in order, too, <laughs> is very important because the last thing we want is for the organization to point any fingers and to, to say, well, well, you're not doing it. So why should we? I think, you know, I've been in a couple of situations where we needed to first get our house in order first, and, and then we'd be a little bit more credible when we go to the organization and have those same conversations. Interesting. So, so key. I, I could talk more on that. Danielle, what three things might you suggest or say that companies can do or uh, as an HR leader, what can we do to advance the DE&I mission? Recruiting is my world, so I'll talk to you about that first. I love, Tommy, the skill-based, taking it from recognizing the bias to figuring out how do we actually do something about that. So I think from recruiting, and Francesca touched on this as well, starting from the job ad, really having a focus on diversity, looking at bias that might be in the language of your job ad or in your initial interview processes, getting diverse candidates in the door, making them feel comfortable and like this is the space for them. That's what's going to build diversity within the organization, which is really a first step. We've used different techniques with either blind or masked resume reviews, training for managers, doing bias evaluations on the job ads. Those have been some more tactical things that we've done to improve our recruiting functions. And this was mentioned too, but having a having a diverse interview panel is, is huge. So I think on the recruiting front, and there's so many great colleges and organizations that specifically are tailored to a diverse population that are ready to partner with you and excited to to have a new avenue for you to be posting jobs and getting candidates from. So I think that's big. We talked about this a little bit as well, but keeping DE&I on the forefront of my mind is something that as an HR leader, I think is my job. I spend a lot of time with the, the CEO and the COO and keeping the terminology, keeping that in the conversation and having that lens and consulting with lean on our DEI team is something that I think is absolutely our responsibility. And then lastly, I think I I love the phrase culture ad rather than culture fit and thinking about really how diversity plays a part in creating new ideas and how that adds to the business and celebrating those wins, being really specific about how someone having a voice that was different than everyone else's voice brought a new idea or pushed an initiative forward or did something interesting, really celebrating those wins to get to get buy-in and to create a community around DE&I and the organization. I think something HR can do. I I love all of that. There's just so much that makes this a very sort of inclusive conversation for all of those things. And I appreciate every bit of insight that you guys gave us today. I have another question. When was the first time you heard the term DE&I and what was your reaction? I mean, you know, it's been around for a while now, but I remember the first time I started to hear about it. But I want to hear what you guys like. What is that term? What, what are, what's going on? How did it resonate with you? Yeah, so I, I guess for me, it resonated quite quickly because as a black woman, right, I moved through the world a particular way. As a gay woman, right, I moved through the world a particular way. 
as a woman, right? It, millennial, I mean, you, you name it. I experience the world a particular way. And so this work makes sense <laughs> just naturally for me. And so, you know, I think that's one of the, the reasons why I kind of found my way into the work. I think a lot of DEI professionals tend to find themselves in the work. Maybe they're, you know, identified internally or maybe they just have a, a genuine interest or both, right? And so for me, obviously, it just kind of it, it resonated because of my lived experience. And one of the most important things that, that I feel like I've learned to do is to also connect with people who don't have an easy time connecting with the work naturally. And I think as uh, practitioners, I think, Lena, you talked about you're a part of a group where, you know, talk about skills of practitioners and what does it take to be successful? I think to, to be able to connect with everyone or at least most people, you know, is important because, you know, we all enter this work at different points, right? There's different points of entry and, you know, there's no one point of entry that's better than the other. So being able to connect with everybody around this work, I think, is important and to try to make it as accessible as possible. I think is important as well. I agree. Danielle, do you remember when you first heard the term and like, what's that? Do I want to know more? What? Or did somebody ask you another <laughs> rousing question? Well, similar, actually, I started my HR career in the construction and material handling industry. So can't have thin skin there. That's for sure. And I, I went into, you know, it was one of those types of, of places that they've been around since the 60s. You could see smoke stains on the ceiling from when you used to be able to smoke cigarettes in the office. So really, really old school. And then I went into a job that was healthcare and very, very um, advanced. And that was the first time that I had heard the term. It was an expectation. I was part of the job descriptions. It was part of the recruiting process. My role was recruiting focused there. And I remember thinking like, oh, these are things that, you know, I have thought to be really important. Some of them were already infused in my work, but I thought this is great that companies are talking about this and we're bridging that gap of, you know, coming from the absolute opposite culture where if politics or religion or anything came up, it was like an employee relation issue immediately coming into a culture where those conversations were encouraged and diversity was something that there was a focus on. I was really, really excited about and and learning more about the terminology and the work that goes into it. it was will be lifelong learning for me and, and something I'm really passionate about. I have one question that I think is really important. So this question is says, taking the first steps to creating a DE&I mission statement can be very overwhelming. There's a lot of information out there. Any recommendations or advice on those very first steps, like one thing they could do to get to move that needle? Yeah, so I would just offer that, you know, get the contribution of, Everyone, representation at every level, right? You can't get everybody's, you know, perspective, right? On, on the mission statement or the vision statement that you're crafting, but just don't let it be just all senior leaders, right? Go to the middle of the organization, go to, you know, the entry levels of the organization and, you know, create kind of a little steering committee or a little group that kind of gives you some perspective on what you're creating because it has to resonate to with everybody at the organization, not just the folks at the top. DEI advisory board. <laughs> that that is what I would say. Yes, find your step. champions and you know find or create a, an advisory board at all levels, like Tommy said. Yeah, I'd say echoing the same things and and start with the why. What are you looking to accomplish? Why are we doing this? Start where you start. So getting a draft, getting some bullet points, having some things to kind of get some some feedback on is is a good first step. 
I agree. And remember, start wherever you are. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Start wherever you are and look around. Do some of these first steps and understand what's going to work for you and your culture. So I appreciate all of you being here today and look forward to next time. Thank you. The Get Pay Right podcast is produced by Kevin Plunkett, Julie Murphy, and Megan Nato. If there are topics you'd like to hear about, let us know at getpayrightatsalary.com. Thank you all for listening and make the time to get pay right. Right.